Hi, welcome to Overlooked. My name is Pooja Advani. My guest today is a person who has spent most of his life working in forests and mountains and educating people about our wildlife. He is a naturalist as well as a wildlife photographer. He is Indrajit Late. Hi, Indrajit. Welcome. Hello. How thank are you, Pooja. I'm fine. Thank you. So, uh, would you say it is true? that India now has been left with only patches of green and no forests. Yeah, it is. Uh, unfortunately, it is. And uh, going by the way we are moving ahead with so-called uh, becoming a modern country, we are going the wrong side. Where, uh, I mean, right now we are in the month of July and uh, we really have very little water or hardly any drinking water in most of our dams. Hmm. So we are so dependent on the rain now and one of the reasons is because we are moving away from uh, the green patches uh, which used to be there uh, and having just buildings coming up everywhere or concretization happening everywhere. So yes, it's true that our forest cover, that's the word hmm. they use, the forest cover has decreased now. So it used to be about 8%, hmm. it's now shrunk further to about 7.5%. And, and uh, being in the wildlife trade, being in the wildlife um, where you work so much in the forest, how is it that you or how is it that you would like to stop this? See, one of the most important things in this aspect is what is the political will of the government, local and national. Right. Uh, when you have got a national government denotifying small patches of forest, be it for mining, be it for timber, be it for collecting non-timber forest produce, that's where the issues start happening. Uh, Goa is a prime example where most of the so-called good patches of forest have been denotified for either some particular mining industry or because it is in an area which is so-called a non-ecotourism -eco zone. So because of that, they've denotified it and then given it to the industry guys so that they can, you know, take whatever is on top or underneath the earth. And these are the issues which are being faced upon. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. What we know, what right. we don't know, we don't even know what we're missing out right now. So wherever there are people involved and making noise in that particular state is what is being highlighted by the media. But there are so many places where, like if you go to the eastern part of the country, hmm. you go towards Nagaland, Mizoram, hmm. Manipur, Tripura, uh, Arunachal, there are huge evergreen patches of forest which some of them are now being cut at, a, at an alarming rate. So uh, we are going to lose those patches if people don't become aware of it. Right. So getting people to even know about these things is very important. That's, that's actually the first step, just becoming aware. And what is it that the awareness that we need to actually start creating so that these issues which are not getting highlighted do get highlighted? One, one thing which I personally think is uh, this is our responsibility to the next generation or the kids who are there. Right. Because see, we inherited this planet from let's say our grandfather or our father. Right. We got it in a particular way. Right. We are unfortunately not even going to pass it down to our kids in that shape. We are going to deteriorate it further and then give it off to them, which is really not fair. Hmm. And then we are going to say, okay, now live. So, you know, that's the issue which is there. So getting kids involved to question parents on, you know what, you had a good life, you had actually water flowing through the streams. We don't have that. Why? 
So right. when the next generation is going to question the current generation and current generation, the earlier generation of what did you do when you were aware or when you knew what was happening is the awareness which we need to get, uh, especially now doing programming in schools and colleges. It's they, they who need to be more aware of what's happening, uh, actual facts which are there rather than our grandparents or our parents. But like, like you're saying, actual facts. If things are not even brought into highlight, Correct. if things are not even brought into people's notice, how are we actually going to get those actual facts? You need young generation getting involved in uh, not only wildlife tourism, but environment as a whole. Right. Uh, we need more environmental lawyers. We need more people who understand rules and regulations which are there in the Wildlife Protection Act, which was implemented in 1972. And hmm. then recently we revamped a bit of it. Uh, mm. Just tweaked it just so that less loopholes are uh, there now. We need people who are working in the forest to come from the younger generation rather than from the older generation who, who are just there as we, we call them ceremonial post. That means they're, they're just to fill up a vacancy. Right. One. So uh, another thing is even after let's say there is some issue which is happening, collecting correct evidence as what the court would be able to actually uh, get the culprit nabbed rather than right. the culprit finding a loophole and then getting away because there's lack of evidence. Right. So these are some of the things which the younger generation needs. Veterinarians who are there involved in the national parks or in wildlife sanctuaries hmm. or even non-wildlife sanctuaries where they are there which are called reserve forests. Right. Which are uh, connecting the national parks right. uh, one after the other. So we need the younger generation which is involved. People like you and me who hmm. need to be more involved. Hmm. I mean, right now, if you see the population of India is 1.3 billion people. Not even 1% of youngsters are involved in wildlife or in environment. So that needs to change. So that will only come when people uh, feel that they can make a difference. Even if they're just a small amount of uh, small group. It is done locally in Bombay, Pune, Delhi. Bangalore, they are all wildlife aware cities, hmm. but we need more wildlife aware cities like those within our whole country. So, I mean, those are a handful of cities very, compared very, to four, compared five to cities yeah. which are taking, and these are all big cities. And typically, person who is taking or being involved in this, that is not their main occupation. That is something which one they are probably doing some other job or work, or they have an industry or something like that. And this is something which they're passionate. So this is like the secondary thing which they want to do also. Given a choice, they would take, make, make that as the major hmm. uh, objective of their so-called uh, career or their life also. But circumstance doesn't let them. Right. So uh, we need people more involved in uh, wildlife as such or environment also, uh, generically speaking. Now we know that India is a very diverse country in terms yeah. of culture, languages as well as wildlife correct yeah we have almost a very wide segment of wildlife that is there what has your experience been as someone that has spent such a lot of time well see uh, honestly speaking i think india is <coughs> probably the only country in the world which has got hot deserts cold deserts rainforests uh, semi-arid conditions mm. uh, evergreen forest patches uh, beaches, uh, the highest mountain range in the world. Right. So it's got a very diverse landscape. Of course, if you've got such a diverse landscape, you also have got a diversity in wildlife. Hmm. Uh, generally, animals, birds, reptiles, plants, insects, uh, mammals. 
we've got 7.2% of the world's animal population with us in terms of diversity. Right. Yeah. This is a huge, huge amount for one country to have. Yeah. Now, if you have such a huge diverse pop, uh, diversity in animal and plant life, is it not our our objective to actually showcase that to one to the world and two to the even locals? Hmm. First, we need to understand what we have and then actually make people get interested in it so that they can come and see it also. Hmm. If I ask any of my friends who are there, who are in wildlife, which is their destination to go to for uh, traveling, uh, for their holidays, typically someone would say Africa, someone would say the Pantanals, which are in mm. South America, uh, someone would say Antarctica or the Arctic areas for wildlife. But very few would come and say India. Yeah? Uh, we've got religious tourism, I mean, because of the Ganga is there, the Yamuna is there and the uh, Narmada and all of that. So we've got religious tourism happening in a very big way, culturally. We've got uh, cultural tourism, which right. is where you go and see the sites uh, in India, which mm. have been artificially built. Uh, we've got adventure tourism where you can go rafting in the Himalayas or you can go adventure sports like uh, trekking on in high altitude areas. Uh, you've got, so you've got these three, four kinds of tourism and then you've got wildlife tourism also. It's a small percentage uh, of population of India which actually does wildlife tourism. Uh, wildlife tourism is very, very important because one, for me, I think it gives employment not only to the people who stay around national parks, but also to other uh, people who are like us, who want to get involved with the local communities within national parks. Right. I'll give you an example. Uh, I used to work in Kana National Park for five years. Hmm. I used to work as a guide over there in hmm. one of the lodges. So my daily job used to be uh, when the guests used to come, uh, I used to put them in a jeep and we used to drive around the national park in Kana. And uh, I used to tell them what wildlife they're seeing. Uh, what is the importance of that wildlife and how that particular kind of wildlife is key in that particular area. Uh, after we finish, the drives used to come back and then, of course, the guests. Now, these are typically inbound guests, the foreigners who are coming into India. Mm. I'm not talking about domestic guests as of now. I will tell, talk about mm. domestic guests also. So, the inbound guests who are coming into India, uh, after we come back and we're sitting around during, say, lunch or during dinner, they want to know a little bit more about India, what is India done, what is India doing and what is the future of, say, Kana National Park. Uh, they also want to know what is the, uh, how much is the involvement of the local population which is around in Kana National Park. So right. here the, the weave which is very, very nice is the local population is involved because they know that whenever there is a tiger involved, people will come to see the tiger. Right. Yeah. Uh, once they get to see the tiger, they will want to know how does the tiger get protected by this particular area so well as compared to some other area. So, of course, the involvement of the local community has to come in because the guide who is taking you inside is a local guide. The driver who is driving you is a local guy. The people who are working in lodges are all locals. They are not coming from other uh, cities of India. Right. Uh, they know that tomorrow if the tiger disappears, these foreign tourists who are coming in are not going to come to our place. So they know their livelihood is at stake. Now once they know the livelihood is at stake, they will definitely want to protect the tiger. So tomorrow if I go over there and I say, you know what, I'm looking for some particular animal to be say poached or something like that, they'll immediately inform the higher authorities that there is an outsider who's come 
and he's been asking around these questions and then they can keep an eye on me or take necessary action what is there right so once that sense of responsibility of livelihood dependent which is there on that tiger population in that mm. national park is there then you'll have a lot of much stronger protection happening in that For area your animals take the example of kaziranga right kaziranga is a prime example i love yeah. uh, talking about kaziranga because it's one of the unique habitats just like in mm. africa you've got the big 5 yes. india we've got the big 5 and all the big 5 five are in and kaziranga you got the rhinos you got the elephants you got the buffalo you got the tiger you got, you the got all of them there all yeah. of them are over there so kaziranga is unique because the flood plains of kaziranga uh, they are made out of uh, they are in existence because of a river called the brahmaputra right the brahmaputra comes in from china floods the plains in assam and then once the fl- flood plains dry out the river continues and the river bed which is there which is close to about 2 and 1/2 kilometers mm. wide becomes a beautiful dense grassland for elephants and rhinos so kaziranga is unique that way so every year flooding happens every year lot of animals which are there perish in those floods mm. but that's a recurring cycle uh in kaziranga because you got the rhinoceros and the elephants of course poaching at one point was very very high now because again local involvement is there the poaching has come down a lot what they've done is the same project uh, same uh, method which was here involve local communities once local communities are involved they know that if we protect these animals we will get tourists coming over there we will get people to come and do some research we will get films being made about that place and that place becoming famous right no one knew about kaziranga until say 15 20 years back true it became famous because so many documentaries were made right even central india ranthambore bandavgarh kanha uh, you know sariska all these places how did they get highlighted because people came there made films word uh, word of mouth was you know told that go to this place it's a good experience which you get over there so that's how they'll improve and all this is happening only because the local community is being involved but the thing is you're talking about involving local communities and uh, you're saying um, we were just talking about how wildlife tourism needs to be brought into prime life because yeah. we have that right sure, sure. we are very rich in wildlife but why is that not happening why are we not highlighting this aspect of tourism which is such a great economic benefit yeah. to the country as well as to your local population um i think there are uh, multiple angles to it right um and these are all my perspectives one of the one of the things is the political will of a country always matters which side do you want to uh, or, or what do you want to promote within your five years as a ruling party or as a government um the government only is taking certain measures and then stopping there uh the local state government is only doing certain measures and stopping there the local government which is there of that particular district or that particular area is again taking certain measures and stopping there they're not going all out uh one of the reasons they probably are not going all out is because lack of education lack of understanding of the dynamics of that particular area uh and also of course financially india is probably the only country which i know where 20% of the national parks are open right 80% are closed for tourism yeah so the first doubt to any wildlifer is oh in 20% i'm seeing such great wildlife is that the same kind of wildlife if that other 80% would be open 
But why is that 80% closed? Uh, now again, the 80% closure is meant so that if the animals uh, get too stressed out or they need to move out from the tourism zone and go into an area which is kind of a secluded area, that's the reason why they can go over there, one. Uh, the parks were open until say about 15 years back, nearly 45-50% of the parks were open. Okay. But then the guidelines came from the government that we are going to only have 20% parks open, uh, which to a certain extent is fine. But then when you look at a country which is saying that wildlife tourism is something which we promote and which we are very proud of to showcase to the world, it does not go together. It does not sink in the same uh, thing. I, sorry, I'm going to cut you here, but you're saying 20% of the flat parks are. So don't you feel at, at some level when these 80% parks got shut, the pressure on these 20% parks became more. And I'm coming to that aspect on a personal experience. Um, I just found it very, I found it strange as well as very, um, how do you say it? When I went to Ranthambore, uh, it was basically there's this bunch of jeeps yeah. that come in front of this one tiger. Okay, this tiger's used to it. Yeah, so the, the simple thing the driver told me, hi, we see him all the time. Usko yeah. to Adat hai. Adat hai. Pehle jab chota tha na, jeep ke Abhi usko adat ho gaya. Yeah. And I'm sitting there in that jeep and I'm looking at him snarl at us, like Correct. literally. He's snarling at each and every car that is there. Do you think he was happy? I don't think he was happy. Yeah. I don't think he was happy. So, uh, since you brought up Ranthambur, Ranthambur is a very unique uh, national park in India. Huh. Where uh, the concepts of tourism are quite uh, skewed, as I would put it. That's probably one of the few parks in the country where you've got these huge vehicles which take 16 or 18 people in one uh, go called the canters. Yes. And then of course you've got the gypsies or the small jeeps, safari vehicles. I had taken the gypsy. Yeah. Sir. yeah. So uh, most of the national parks in the country take the small jeeps. Right. Yeah. Uh, there are certain rules laid out by the government in the 20% area also. For example, let's take Ranthambore's uh, case since you've been there. Ranthambore has got 10 zones. Yes. Yeah. Uh, zone 1 to zone 5 are around the national, uh, around the fort. And zone 6 to zone 10 are behind the fort. Yes. Yeah. Uh, zone 1 to 5. Now let's take zone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. There are only a certain number of vehicles which are allowed in every zone. So let's say there are two jeeps and four canters allowed in every zone. Uh, and there are guides who are sitting in the jeeps to make sure that you don't jump the zone from one zone to the other zone. Uh, for reasons that, like what you were saying, the tiger was snarling. Tiger was unhappy. You know what, you're getting too close. If I right now get up and sit right next to you, you'll be uncomfortable. Right. But you can verbalize it to me. The right. tiger cannot. What is the tiger, tiger doing? He's snarling. Or at the most, if that does not, um, you know, uh, suffice, he will move away. Yeah. But we still will continue going towards that thing. Uh, coming back to the number of jeeps. Now, in case there are so-called VIP guests, which are forest dignitaries, or government uh, dignitaries, then they get sent to particular areas to see particular uh, tigers. So that's where probably the crowding must have happened. Otherwise, in most national parks, only the designated number of jeeps which are allowed are only seen in those zones. Okay. You take Bandhavgarh, you take Kanha, right. you take Pench, any of these big national parks, which are really, really well managed, uh, they've got only a certain number of jeeps. Uh, 
and the calculation is also pretty well done. What they have done hmm. is, let's say there is 300 kilometers of road network in one particular zone. Right. In 300 kilometers of road network, there can be 12 cars. If there are 12 cars, that means between the, the distance between any two cars is about 2-3 kilometers. Okay. Even as you're driving around. Hmm. So at no given point of time, there, will there be more than 3-4 cars within a 25-30 kilometer patch? So that's the calculation which they've come up. So the number of vehicles per zone is very nice. Okay. It's perfect. It's definitely kept... Uh, they've kept the animal on priority hmm. rather than the tourists on priority. Right. But Ranthambore, like I said, is a skewed thing. There, unfortunately, it does. It just doesn't work yeah, that we way. We were about five cars. Yeah, you'll be about five, seven one, cars at the yeah, most. Five so cars, that means, one canter. Exactly. At, so, and one tiger. So. Yeah, and one tiger. <laughs> so because maybe that tiger was known to be over there at that particular time or it was the end of the zone and you're turning around or something like that. Yeah. So all of them congregated there. Right. And then, you know... Tigers are magnetic. No one knows how all cars converge over there. Even if it's just one or two cars, they'll all exactly converge at the same time when the tiger is seen. That are it's, it, you just cannot pinpoint how. Like, for example, if we are watching a tiger and we see a car coming from the back and we ask them, oh, how did you know there was a tiger? They said, we don't know. We just thought there was a tiger here, so we came here. So I saw that in Saraskal, so I saw that in Nantambur. It's Nantambo. impossible to know how cars converge and uh, see the tiger in its natural surroundings, uh, which is very beautiful. But coming to Ranthambore or Kanha or other national parks, huh. I think uh, one of the most important aspects of going on a safari is the first experience which a person has. I mean, I'm certain you'll remember your first ever safari which you've done. I remember mine when I did it in Corbett when I was eight years old. So I remember very, very distinctly, there was an elephant which was there and we went on the elephant back. We went in, uh, th that time there were no zones or something like that. Mm. So we just, the elephant took us inside and I only remember seeing one stripe of a tiger in the bush, in the Lantana bush. Mm. And that was my tiger sighting, but I remember that first experience mm. always. So uh, it's always very important to have a very positive experience, which is your first uh, experience. So a first safari is very, very important. And the guides who are there with you, the drivers who are there with you, they are the ones who make your experience wonderful or beautiful. Because if you have a wonderful experience, you'll come and repeat that again. Right. Like, let's say you want to go to a trek and mm. you go to say, um, wherever, which is the trek you went to, anywhere. I've done one in Malaysia. I mean, I've not gone to Whichever Malaysia. So yeah. No, even in Malaysia. Malaysia. I went to like Fraser Hills and Cameroon Islands. And I did Taman Negara. You went to Taman Negara National yeah, Park. Yeah. Okay, they've got the canopy walks over yeah, there. Yeah, and all we that. got stuck there. And so all that. Yeah. so the, the, the experience over there is beautiful. So next time when someone says, oh, I want to go for a trek, you'll definitely recommend that one. Right. Why? Because you've had a good experience. Yeah. Same thing happens with safari. Same thing happens with wildlife experiences. However important or however glamorous that animal is, if that experience is not good, you're not going to go look forward to it or want to repeat it again. I mean, tiger is of course one of the iconic species which is there. But even if, let's say you go to Sanjay Gandhi National Park, which is right here in or Borivli National Park as they call it. Mm. Going on a nature trail just in the beginning of monsoon mm. or in the middle of the monsoon and you see these amazing, and you're walking. You see these amazing small creatures, you see these loop caterpillars. Right. You see these ants which are crossing which is on their chemical highways. Right. People, if they get interested and if they know what they're seeing, obviously it's going to, you know, be with them for a lifetime. Okay. When I used to be, uh, when I started working in my hmm. career, 96, 95, 
uh, one of the things which we were stressed upon is educate the children. Yeah, and educate the children in such a way where what they learn in classrooms is what they actually will see outside. Right. So the relation happens, right? Uh, see, as a uh, me as a human being, I will learn better if I've got something in my hand rather than if I can only see it. Yeah. So imagine I give you a leaf and I tell you this is a compound leaf, and if I give you another leaf and if I tell you it's a simple leaf, huh. you'll know the difference between a compound leaf and a simple leaf immediately. Right. Yeah, but if I tell you, oh, the banyan's got a simple leaf and the tamarind has got a compound leaf, you're like, okay, I have no idea no, what I they mean. But I know, okay, banyan's got a simple leaf and tamarind's got compound leaf. But when I show you a compound leaf which has got just a one thing and small, 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 small leaflets all around, hmm. as against a full-fledged banyan, you know which is a compound leaf, a simple leaf. Agreed. So if children learn it hands-on, they'll always remember it more. So coming so, back to the children thing, so yes. you really feel that the education system has should put this in, right? Uh, in terms of, I I think the education system has put it in. Uh, it's about implementation. Funnily, funnily, we actually have a class which is called environment science. Right. Yeah, that's coming about six or eight, seven yes. years back. Yes. The Maharashtra state government yes. has decided to put it. If you open the textbook of that uh, class, it starts from I think sixth grade on, sixth standard mm -hmm. onwards. If you open it, everything what is there around you is all in that book. But the people who are there to teach that should teach it with that much passion. Environment class is not conducted by a science teacher. It's conducted by someone who's done environment science or someone who's passionate about environment. You know, generically. generically. But here, no, no, madam ko bolo, wo class le ligi wo. So, you need someone who, and if you're not passion driven, you cannot imbibe that in the child also. The child has to see, oh, it's coming. Why, why is your favorite teacher always someone of the subject which you love? Because she is passionate probably about, or he is passionate about that subject. Why do I not like maths? Because my maths teacher never made it sound nice. Why did I not like physics? Because my physics teacher always said things which went over my head. But that thing, it happened for maths and physics for all of us. Well, no, not for all. I mean, there could be people <laughs> who love me, maths. I'm, I'm, yeah, there could be people who love numbers yeah. because their teacher must have been very passionate or, uh, you know, like my nephew, my, uh, he's, he, uh, I just got to know, he himself went and registered for a calculus class. He's 11 years old. So he's got the right teacher. Right. So the same, my, my, my point is, if you're, if you're a passionate teacher, that passion will rub onto the children. Agreed. And you cannot teach environment science in a classroom. No way can you do that. You have to get out. You have to make them touch the mud. You have to tell them about the soil. You have to tell them about the trees. I mean, just touch the bark of a tree. The bark of a tree continuously keeps growing. I mean, yeah. a tree keeps growing until it dies. Right. Yes. There is no way a tree can stop growing. And the bark is like our clothes. It keeps peeling off. Hmm. So as the bark grows, the tree grows. That's why you always see tree barks falling off. Falling off. So, yes, kids are very, very important, whatever uh, age group they're in, just to get them to understand what's happening around them. Just to make them ask questions to us that, you know, don't you think this is wrong? Hmm. Don't you think this is right? Can we encourage uh, this particular kind of a thing which is happening? Like, you know, I mean, it could be as simple as uh, having a small science project, which gets even the parents being questioned on what's happening in the project. So, right. yes, definitely. Children are very, very keen. Yeah. Talking about safaris and, and national parks and sanctuaries, there are certain sanctuaries that offer elephant rights. Correct. Now, you're taking one endangered species yes. to say 
another, another endangered, endangered species. species. Yeah. How does that balance out and how is that fair? It's, I, I don't think anyone who sits on the elephant and goes and sees a tiger or goes and sees other wildlife or takes a joyride, even they know it's not fair. Yeah. Uh, personally speaking, I am totally against uh, sitting on the elephant back and going and going for a joyride or going to see wildlife or something like that. Uh, but you keep in mind uh, the kind of people who come into India, the foreigners who come to, into India have been, uh, they've got a projection about India where there used to be kings and rulers who used to sit majestically on an elephant and they used to go into the, come into the city or go win a war or something like that. So sitting on an elephant has been synonymous with India for many, many centuries. That continued on uh, and the second side of it now, I'll, I'll join both these mm. sides. The second side is elephants are required in national parks. The reason elephants are required in national parks especially is because uh, they need, they are owned by the forest department. Now let's okay. take a tiger who is injured. Yeah, Because it's an apex predator, it's an iconic species, mm. it is on top of the food chain, mm. it needs to be looked at or it needs to be looked into what has happened to the tiger, right. you know, how is it injured, things like that. You cannot walk in over there. You cannot go by jeeps because jeeps are only meant to be on the roads. If it goes into the bush, you don't know what's happening. Getting on the elephant yeah, with the mahout and the veterinary doctor along with the forest guard and going in through the bush to locate where the tiger is, tranquilize the tiger, medicate it, give it anesthesia again so that it gets revived and then observing that nothing happens to the tiger can only be done from elephant back. Agreed, but yeah. then I'm coming into the fact that you're in a sanctuary yeah. and you are in an area where all animals are supposed to be free. Correct. Now you're taking one animal that is actually supposed to belong yeah. and not be in captivity. Sure. You're taking him out of his natural habitat, putting him through the process of Punjab yeah. so that you can ride him to take care of another animal. Sure. How is it justified? It, no, no, it's not justified. But what do you do with these animals which we have? Like there are close to six and a half thousand. No, no, there are close to six and a half thousand elephants which are domesticated right now in India. That is true. Yeah? You need some place one to put these animals. If in case you say okay, we'll stop all these things. Hmm. One, yeah. I'm thinking of it more selfishly. I'm thinking of it selfishly. You've got the elephant who's there, who's owned by the forest department in Kana National Park or in any any national park. Yeah. They are happy where they are in their current state. I am not saying you get more elephants from the wild, break them and then get them harnessed and then ride them. I am not talking and I am not talking about joyrides at all. That's a total tourism side which is not at all and most people are now against all these things. Most. I am not saying all. Very small amount of people are still there who want to do the joyride but it's a very small number and they are also frowned upon by everyone who is around them. True. So that is gone side. I am looking at the forest department side. For someone from the forest department who has got say 12 elephants in one national park which are owned by the forest department specifically for patrolling or for looking after let's say tiger or whichever animals which are there. These elephants if you are not doing anything with them they don't have any place to go as such one. Second is they are not wild enough because they were bred amongst those elephants and then the young ones were born and now they are raised. That's how it's happened. No new forest, forest departments have not got any new elephants. 
these elephants were all have been with them for a, at least say about 30 by 40 years hmm. it's not new elephants coming in so they've bred between them they've got young ones the young ones have become adults and they've become you know now they can be ridden upon and things like that so if you're saying you cannot use these or it's not good to have one iconic species going and you know hmm. uh, towards the other one what do you do with these elephants you can't let them be in the forest because they're not in their natural environment central india is not elephant territory True. But you've got so many still elephants with the uh, national parks over there. True. That is meant specifically for patrolling. Okay. Yeah. So, personally thinking, it's fine. Because I know they're being looked after well. Yeah. They're not broken into at all. Because what happens is if the mother elephant is there and the young one comes and she's seeing that the mother's fine with this guy, the mahout, who's patting her, feeding her, things like that, bathing her, he also comes and does the same thing again. So, slowly, slowly, he also gets used to it. Yeah, it is controversial. I know some people might not say that, you know what, let them go into the wild. But these guys cannot go back into the wild because they cannot defend themselves against other elephants. It's like same thing. You've got a tiger in a zoo. It's given babies. Can you not release those babies in the forest? You can release them. You can look after them, make them, give them food until they actually learn how to hunt. And they will hunt. But how will they defend themselves against other tigers? Right. That only comes because of the mother teaching them or sibling rivalry. Right. So, same thing happens with elephants. You cannot reintroduce the elephants in the thing. No, there I, are a lot I of organizations. I saying at one point, but I still come into the whole space of where this recent, um, um, it was a full thing that had come by a certain photographer who saw an X amount of elephants being broken in one of these national parks. I agree. I agree. And when you're looking at those kind of things happening in yeah. your national no, parks. No, then that's totally a no-no. I'm not... I, yeah. So I'm that's saying, where I'm coming yeah, from. Yeah. That, 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 those two from. don't go together exactly. at all. Not at all. Not at all. Exactly. As far as the national parks, which I know, hmm. which I have been working and I've been frequenting for the last about 30 years now, hmm. no new elephants have come where they've been brought in from somewhere else, put in over here, broken down and then being used. Hmm. Most of the parks which are there, and typically Central Indian parks, I'm mentioning, hmm. which is Bandavgarh, Kanha, and Penj. But this these was three Bandavgarh parks. where this came. No, was no, from. those elephants which came came from the north, from Jharkhand side, hmm. and they marooded a particular area. There are 42 elephants which came inside. Hmm. They came there and they came into the national park hmm. because many years back that used to be the route from where they used to go down to a Chhattisgarh. Right, that was the, cor the corridor. That was the corridor. Yeah. That was the corridor. So these were not broken. What happened over there? I'll tell you the incident huh. also. So, uh, from Jharkhand, these elephants moved down towards the Bandavgarh area. Hmm. Yeah. And they came into this zone which is called Khitoli or Magdi. Hmm. And they, of course, they are foraging. So, they are breaking down the bamboo and things like that. They don't like humans because they've been, when they were young or something like that, the human must have troubled them somewhere. So, as soon as they see humans, they're trumpeting and charging and things like that. So, the humans, they're bursting crackers. So, that is what that conflict was happening over there. I don't think any of them were caught and broken. What they were doing is they were trying to push them back using local elephants. But that didn't work. Hmm. So the local elephants also were withdrawn. So that was the issue which had happened over there. It's still not resolved as hmm. far as I know. They're still in that area and they're still settled over there. But right now, uh, for certain, they've not been captured and broken. No, no, this is not the, this is not the incident. No, this is another incident. Oh, then I, this is the Bandargarh case is what I'm talking about. So, the Bandargarh case, there was, um, there was this photographer who okay. basically had gone in for a safari. Okay. And that's where he had seen these two baby elephants being broken. Okay. And that's when he pho pho photographed it. Okay. And um, he turned around and said that I will never visit India again. 
oh. for this reason. And he made wow. a very big hue and cry about okay. it. Okay, I'm now, unaware of this. Yeah, okay. so basically that is the point that I was bringing out. Yeah. No, uh, in I, terms of, um, you have someone who's coming to document correct. your wildlife. Yeah. And then of course they see the other aspect of, of course. it. And then they are totally put off. Hmm. And then somehow that has now become a national sensation. In terms but, of, they, they do land up going out and talking to I people. Agree. And then that puts a complete negative light on our life. But Pooja, what I say is, what is wrong in that? What is wrong in getting out this, which is a fact, where hmm. he's photographed it, documented and putting it out to the no, world? No, there's nothing wrong in it. Exactly. It is about the fact that this is happening in your oh, sanctuary. That is true. That, that is totally that is what wrong. I'm that is totally wrong. Yeah. But see, now again, what I said right in the beginning, if people are made aware that this is happening in the sanctuary, only then there will be some evasive action taken. Right. 100%. Hmm. So definitely that is totally a wrong thing which is uh, there. But uh, the other incident which I was talking about was these elephants huh. which came in by themselves. And of course it was in the corridor which is there. Yeah. yeah. So now since we're talking about sanctuaries, natural parks, um, firstly can you tell us what is the difference between all of that that we have in India? So your sanctuaries, your... Sanctuaries, national parks, wildlife reserves, reserves tiger uh, reserves, tiger reserves uh, uh, you know, recreate uh, or regional forests, territorial right. forests. These are all words used by the Ministry of Environment and Forest to manage green spaces which they have. Right. Uh, let's take the example of the central Indian state of Madhya Pradesh. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Madhya Pradesh has got nine national parks in them. Yeah, they've got 30 plus sanctuaries, lots yeah. of small corridors which are there. It is physically impossible for a state government to manage Madhya Pradesh as a whole. Hmm. So what they have done is they have designated small patches as let's say national parks, let's say uh, wildlife reserves, let's say buffer zones, let's say territorial forests. And they have accordingly sanctioned funds and they have given due protection to it according to the issue and sensitivity of that particular area. The lowest amount of patrolling or protection or funding goes to something which is called a territorial forest, which is the outskirts. Okay. Yeah. The second layer which is there is called a wildlife sanctuary. Right. Yeah. That gets little bit better protection. It gets better management little by the forest. Little bit better. Little, I mean, relatively, yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, let's say 30% better. <laughs> okay. So 30% better funding huh. and management and uh, also the kind of uh, people who are there the villagers who are there, they've got certain rights on that particular land. Okay. Yeah. For example, in a wildlife sanctuary, if I see, if I'm a villager and if I see a tree which has fallen down, which is dead, I have the right to pick it up and take it to my home and use it as fuel. Okay. Only if it is dried and found dead. I cannot go cut a tree. Right. Leave it over there, let it dry and then say, oh, there's a tree, I can pick it up. Huh. That's not allowed. But if who's you find watching that? Again, there are forest guards who are there. Yeah. So management is there. So they're taking okay. care of that. So that's the wildlife sanctuary. Uh, you can do agricultural farms and that if you're in a village in a wildlife sanctuary. Okay. So you can have agriculture if you've been there before. Okay. Yeah, you cannot say, okay, now let's cut these trees and start agriculture over there. That's not allowed. Okay. But if you've been doing that for a long time, since before the inception of the sanctuary, so villages have been there for a long time. So you can continue doing that. Then you come to a national park. Now in a national park, you cannot have any villages inside. Whatever villages are there, the forest has got a plan to actually take that village out, relocate it outside and you know, settle it down there. And then that national park is totally 
good. So you cannot have anyone uh, collecting any firewood or any produce like mahua, like you know tendu mm. or anything of that sort. You cannot have. There are certain iconic species which are meant to be found in that national park. Hmm. There are certain iconic plant numbers or diversity in plants which are supposed to be found over there, hmm. which are protected, and that will have the maximum amount of funding. That will have the maximum amount of protection. That will have the maximum amount of inflow of tourism also. Okay. And forest officers are given certain guidelines to go by to manage that particular national park. Okay. So these are the three categories generically. If you see, hmm. so national park has got highest amount of protection. Highest amount of um, no activities of outsiders. You're not allowed to walk in national park. You cannot collect stuff from national park like a dead tree or anything like that. Yeah. But wildlife sanctuary and the territorial forest, which is lowered in rank, uh, are allowed. Now the beauty of it is a national park. If it wants to, the management wants to expand. What it does it is, is expand its boundary. So it takes certain parts of the wildlife sanctuary inside. Okay. The wildlife sanctuary then takes certain part of the territorial forest inside, okay. and the territorial forest takes certain amount of normal forest or just land, and then they afforest it. They plant trees around it. Okay. That's how the parks grow. Now we are not having parks grow because I, I know that's the next that. question. We are not having parks grow because what's happening is a village this size is increasing. So a park which is here is shrinking because the village is expanding. So that's where the problem. With the forest department and the local villagers is, and that's what's giving rise to your animal-human conflicts. It they will because I have got a I'm a villager, and I've got my fields which are there which have got let's say rice or let's say I've got wheat. I've got a deer coming in. I've got nilgai coming in. I've got wild boar coming in at night. I'm going to try and protect my crop. I've worked hard for it, and it's my right to protect my own crop. So I will use, let's say, electrical fencing, or I'll use some firearms, locally made, or you know something like that. I'll poison, you know, a small water hole over there, just so that that guy does not come and destroy my crop. That's where the conflicts arise. Now that's where you need to have very sensitive forest officers resolving these issues. That yes, there are some national parks in the country where 30% or 20% of crop damage is paid to the villager. Right. That you know what your crop is going to be your crop is damaged thirty percent. The forest department will reimburse you. So the villagers saying, okay, fine. When this year I'm going to calculate how much produce I have, I would have already calculated that thirty percent loss, which I will get from the government, which is fair enough. So these are things which they are now working on slowly, amicably. Hmm. See, at the end of the day, the forester is also a local village only. He is going to be from that same region. He is not going to come. Let's say a park in Madhya Pradesh, Kerala officer is not going to come and hmm. you know. Uh, talk to people over there. He has to be a localite to understand the local problems. So that way, animal-human conflicts can be resolved very, very nicely if there is a sensitive officer who is in charge of that. But we are not doing that. Some yes. some parks are. Some, I'll some give you an example, are. and I'm going to take some names of people also. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, when I was working in Kanha National Park, there was an incident which happened where uh, one of the mahouts uh, who had gone to Get the elephant back uh, for bathing. Uh, he entered in an area. This is inside the national park. He mm. had his elephant inside. So he had gone to get the uh, elephant back to the uh, place where the elephants are kept to give it a bath and give it some food for the evening. Uh, abruptly, he stumbled upon a tigress with three cubs. When he's walking through that bush to actually look for the elephant, uh, the tigress suddenly she saw this human being. Uh, very close to her cubs, 
and she charged at him and of course she killed him yeah she didn't eat him she didn't do anything she charged at him she killed him she took the cubs and she went away uh the other mahouts which were in that area they realized that oh this guy is not answering his walkie talkie so shall we go over there and when they reached over there they saw the uh, site what was whatever was there uh, he was a localite from the village just outside the national park uh, the director of the park at that time was mr negi himmat singh negi hmm. uh, mr negi found out that this tigress has killed this mahout uh, that could have been a huge issue yeah because he's from the village the villagers would have said you know what we don't want that tigress here whatever is the issue mr negi was so sensitive enough that he took up the case upon himself to go to that village to go to that guy's house to go to talk to his parents offer condolences call a village meeting and say that you know not only are we sorry that this incident has happened in our uh, reserve but also he was like a family member with us and we will immediately give you compensation we will also offer his kind of a post or an equivalent to one of your family members who can come and work in the forest department and you know he made the matter i mean of course villagers were furious his family was of course there but when they see that an officer is coming over there with, with empathy and understanding their feelings and giving them options uh, you know looking after their old age things like that then of course they understand it this happens it's a rarity that's why i said i'm going to take names because it right. happens the rarity and hats off to that director of the park these are very few incident i mean i can only recall this incident if you ask me hmm. where the park director actually has been so sensitive to go and be with the, that same villager where such a you know, drastic incident has happened i can give you 1 million examples where it's not happened what's the point that i was going to come at now was that why is this kind of sensitization and okay understandably animal uh, animal man conflict is there because of abc reasons sure. why is that this kind of sensitization uh, sensitization to situations like this is not actually become a mandate for every forest department or every officer that is there because see it's a it's a it's a it's a catch 22 actually when a forest officer so when you join the indian forest service hmm. yeah uh, you are sent into a college which is there either in bangalore or one in uh, northern part of the country in dehradun wildlife institute of india when you when you are over there they're teaching you how to handle uh, issues pertaining to the forest they're teaching you issues pertaining to animals plants uh, they're teaching you how to manage grasslands how to manage water resources they are not teaching you how to handle villagers they are not teaching you how to handle tourism see another unfortunate unfortunate thing in india is no national park has got a tourism officer when you say that we are conducting to wildlife tourism in this national park so director of the national park or a deputy director or range officer of a national park who has no idea of how to handle tourists even be as simple thing as being courteous you know being there in case tourists have any questions they are not taught that that is probably a small void which Needs they need to, to be fill yeah. yeah big time when how do you handle tourism the tourism lobby is such a big lobby and wildlife tourism is such a huge uh, 
I mean, a money uh, spinner for the it, yeah, right? it is. It is something that needs to grow. It is. It we is. have that. It is. It is. So I think that particular incident which was there, because the director was very sensitive. One director probably was very passionate. That's why, and he took the onus on him. He could have easily told his uh, subordinate, "You go and handle it. Just you know, tell them, and we'll give them." They would have done the same thing which this gentleman has done. Oh, offer condolences, give you the, give them uh, compensation, and tell them you can get one more government job from your family. And they could have easily done it. Why did he do it? Because he felt that this was the way. This is the way I am going to set a certain standard. So that standard was very high and set, and is now there. So now people talk about it. जब नेगी साहब थे तब ऐसा हादसा हुआ था तब ये हुआ था सो द नेक्स्ट डायरेक्टर विच कम्स ना ही नोज ओके दैट्स द लेवल विच आई नीड टू बी एट बट दैट्स ओनली नॉट सेगमेंटेड टू अ सर्टेन बट इट हैज टू स्टार्ट समवेयर ना अग्रीड बट देन नाउ व्हाट हैपेंस व्हेन अ ताडोबा हैपेंस या या व्हेन व्हेन थ्री एंड वी आर टॉकिंग अबाउट नाउ आर आइकॉनिक स्पीशीज वी आर टॉकिंग अबाउट अ स्पीशीज दैट इज बेसिकली द मोस्ट इंपोर्टेंट स्पीशीज फॉर दिस कंट्री दैट श्योर या वन ऑफ द मोस्ट इंपोर्टेंट um three of them were killed in tadoba by poisoning correct correct um avni's case correct. per se correct uh in these kind of cases um if we are putting a standard of a mr negi yeah then why is it not filtering in here i think every person handles it differently every person handles it according to his or her beliefs or limitations what are there Uh, or their way they think is the best way or that's the only way they know that's the reason why they are handling it very differently i mean incidents like these will happen agree i mean uh, i mean it is about controlling them right it, it i is would about, look at it and would, say that if we have such a diverse wildlife and we are a population that is just expanding yeah. and we are actually not even expanding we're exploding correct as a population um we are now going into spaces which is actually there's there's true and see the, we then now call them criminals i uh, well i don't think they've called they've been called criminals no but point. i know you are you are what you're what you were going to it see there are two factors in this one is we are protecting natural natural spaces okay we're giving ideal breeding conditions to all animals which are there agreed yeah then so that's one part second part is our population which you rightly said is not is not stable it's increasing yeah both the animals which are breeding here and the humans which are breeding here are pushing so somewhere someone has to give in and because we we are so called the supreme species we are not going to give in we are not going to give in so who's going to give in the poor animals are going to give in and that's where all these cases like the avnis you have got the tadova incidents you have got the corbett which is there the page national highway which is going through all these incidents you go to gear you got the lion issue, issues over there all that is happening because we are making we are telling the animals okay we are protecting you we are giving you these ideal conditions we are giving you enough food we are giving you enough water this is your protected area stay only over here but that's not possible that's no? what i'm saying so both population expansions are happening and because we are so called the supreme species we are not going to let them come towards us but we don't mind going there so that's where the conflict will happen and always they will be so called criminalized that they came and did this they came and did that it's not going to be oh because of our mistake it's happened it's never going to be that way but these things will always happen when you are in uh, such a uh, area where there's so many dynamics happening Hmm. between different species not only humans and tigers or humans and whatever but any any other species 
in a very simple example i'll give you where uh, in um, uh, australia there's a place called guam hmm uh there was an incident in guam which happened in 2005 2006 where there were too many uh, rodents on that particular island what had happened is the ships used to come over there uh, they used to uh, dock for certain days and then they used to continue on move ahead uh, towards singapore so one of the ships which was carrying grains had rats in them or mice in them and they somehow got onto that island and because there was no natural predator for them they multiplied and rats or mice multiply big time so then suddenly there was a infestation of rats or mice in that thing one of the local people over there they said oh you know what let's kill these rats but how birds are not picking them up our rat traps are not working what do we do best thing get a snake so they decided okay let's say then they identified certain species of snakes they said okay there's a cat snake which is there hmm. which is perfect for catching these rats because it can even go into burrows and holes they got the cat snake from there the cat snakes were brought they were released on the island the cat snakes definitely finished off all the rats over there now the cat snakes didn't have anything else to eat so they i mean they multiplied they didn't have anything else to eat so they started climbing up trees they started eating on the eggs of birds birds disappeared now there are so many cat snakes in guam it actually is called the guam cat snake mm -hmm. there are so many cat snakes in guam that they don't know what to do with them now to look after that particular uh, incident they need to get in something else so always when you are you are playing god basically when you are saying this is a national park breed over here this is mumbai breed over here and then when they are coming head to head borivli national park why you have got leopards in rml colony mm. they have no else to go they are coming this side then we say oh leopard has taken my dog or leopard has come into my building or leopards come into my society because they have no where else to go you are saying don't come in my space i will come in yours where you expand the villages are making boundaries bigger by making small forest tracks into agricultural lands right you are expanding in theirs when they are coming into yours you call them criminals so it is always going to be a conflict of interest between both these things how you solve that i don't know how we're going to solve that it's going to be a tricky question uh, even to get into that and say you are right and i am wrong or i am right and you are wrong so i mean all the incidents of course at the most you can educate people in the surrounding areas uh, understand when you are uh, understand the importance of protecting an area uh, and seeing what it is going to be 10 years down the line right is it going to become smaller is it going to shrink is it going to become bigger the prey base which is over there is it going to increase the predator base is it going to increase is it going to decrease that's what the forest officers are doing that's mm. what they are meant to do and they're doing it successfully see since you are talking about tigers and uh, the cubs dying in tadow and all tiger is one of the most uh, tiger is one of the prolific breeders in the world True. every 2 years three tigers are born every 2 years so in a lifespan of a tigress which is about 12 to 15 years she can anywhere give birth to 12 to 16 tigers just see the multiplication which it goes on with yeah where are so many tigers going to go i agree but the the equivalent are also dying they, i mean I of course they we were because there's a conversation that yeah. avni happened and after avni there were abc number of, yeah, yeah, of tigers that died yeah. and every day now is basically I think after Abhi, it was about seven to ten that we saw. Probably, probably. Yeah, yeah. roughly. Yeah, yeah, probably. Ah, uh, we saw. Then the equivalent. If she's going, to, if one tigress yeah. is going to breed about twelve, you're seeing about eight to ten dying too. Correct, correct, correct. Yeah. So your ratio is almost ratio, the same. It is, it is, yeah. But also, see, there are again there are a lot of things which we need to understand. Tigers are highly territorial. 
True. So if there's a tigress in a particular territory, uh, she's not going to let some other tigress come and settle down over there. She'll keep driving them away. So there are a lot of tigers who are going to go into the buffer zones, into villages, going to get stronger over there and then come back inside to challenge the other male or the female tiger for territories. Hmm. So that's where the, when they go into the buffer zones is where they have the conflicts. So that, so we need to manage buffer zones really, really well. National parks are managed well. There's no issue in that. Uh, buffer zones, if you manage well, then you'll not have as many tiger uh, human conflicts as what we are having right now. Even this incident which has happened in Tadoba where two tiger cubs were, uh, two tiger cubs and the mother, mother were, were probably poisoned or whatever. Now we'll find out what happened to them. Right. But that again, it's a case where they've come out from the buffer zone where they've in, uh, you know, interacted with some farmer or something like that. And that's where it's happened. So that farmer doesn't know what best to do with it. The tiger doesn't know what best to do with this. So that in, uh, confrontation is bound to happen and it's very unfortunate that the end is of the tiger. So if the tiger dies, you know, we are like, oh, the two, ti two tigers and a tigress was uh, killed and all that. Uh, see the story from the other side. If that tigress had killed this man and his two kids, what would you have done? Would you have shot, you would have shot the tiger. So now if this, I, I'm just assuming that this guy must have poisoned it, Mr. A. So if the Mr. A has found, been found to be have poisoned that water hole where the cubs and the mother died, will you shoot that Mr. A? He was you not. No, no, I'm just saying because this, if someone had poisoned it hmm. and that guy who poisoned it was found that this guy poisoned the tiger, will you shoot that guy? You won't shoot him. So how do you then explain that? So that it doesn't make sense. A lot of things don't make sense that way. So, uh, but we have what we have and we have to work around what we have. So that's what it is. I mean, again, now it's going to be quite controversial also what happened and how it happened and things like that. A lot of justifications will come out, a lot of things will happen. But I think at the end of the whole thing, people are becoming more aware. Uh, yes, in a very uh, negative impact way, it's people are becoming mm. aware that this is happening. It's not a right message just going out to the world that True. people are, you know, poisoning animals which are there, which we are so-called spending so much money to protect. True. So uh, definitely it's not a great message which we are sending out to the world that uh, and, and it's coming out from the same areas consecutively, consecutively. either and be it a, a, a roadkill or it could be being poisoned, electrocuted or whatever man-human conflicts have always been an issue. Yeah. So it's just the fact about the management of it, which we are somewhere not figuring it out. It could be, it could be more than just management. Management is just one part of it. Right. See, the forest department can help you understand what you should do on, and what you should not do. It also is from the management of the villages which are around national parks on what you should do and what you should not do. So yeah, it's agreed. very important both ways. Agreed. Second is uh, people after, let's say for example in certain cases, the forest department is now getting itself equipped in gathering evidence where they can now, uh, in terms of, let's say a poacher is caught, you get a tiger whose feet are missing or claws are missing or whatever. So forest department now is getting the proper training to actually go gather evidence okay. on what to look for when you see a carcass of let's say whichever animal, not only tiger, it could be otters, it could be, you know, other animals also. Uh, what do you look for when you go over there? What is the first scene? What are the kinds of photos which you need to present? 
what are the kind of documentation which you need to do, what are the kind of uh, interviews you need to do, uh, how you need to record those interviews, Got all it. that now the forest is doing it. So now they're also learning that, okay, just because he's, uh, he was seen in the scene doesn't mean he's a criminal. Right. But the court says, I will say he's a criminal if you give me enough evidence. Right. So to have a foolproof case, the forest department needs to have uh, a correct evidence to you know cover up all their bases. So that is also happening. So it's happening. It's it's unfortunately it's, it's a slow pace, uh, but it is it is definitely happening. So coming to we were discussing about um, iconic species that you had yeah. spoken to, and we have quite a number. Yeah. We have quite a number, and uh, apart from our um, tigers and lions, yeah, India is famous for yeah. So uh, can we know one, which are the iconic species that we do have? And uh, what has your experience been in trying to spot those? Okay, I will um, uh, give you my perspective on iconic species. I iconic species is something which is sought after. Right. Yeah, it's something which is like a fulfilling uh, achievement after you see that or you photograph that or you be in even in the vicinity of that particular species. One of the things which uh, I am very, very fond of now in these last say five, seven years is the snow leopards and the red pandas. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, the reason why in the last five, seven years is because now they are getting accustomed to being seen. Earlier also they were there, but they were very skittish. Hmm. They were unsure of what this human is. And if my interaction with the human is there, what will the end result be? So over a period of, and let's say maybe 20, 30 years, they have seen that these animals are okay in the presence of humans also. Yeah, let's take snow leopards for, the, for example. Snow leopards are found in altitudes of 12,000 and above, generally speaking. Um, they are found in Leh, Ladakh, going all the way from there towards Sikkim, and uh, towards east, uh, right. east side also of India and towards west side of India into Pakistan. Hmm. Uh, no one really knows exactly how many snow leopards are there. The guesstimate is about 3000. Okay. Until three years back, the snow leopard was uh, one of the highly endangered cats which was uh, there. Three years back, it was taken off that list because the numbers are pretty nice or pretty stable. So it's been taken off that list. Uh, snow leopards, sighting of snow leopard is really magical because it's, it's probably the hardest cat to see in the world. The hardest big cat to see in the world. There are smaller cats like the clouded leopard, mm. uh, which is there, which are next to impossible to see. You can walk past a clouded leopard and you'll not see it because of its camouflage. But a snow leopard is very, very difficult. One is because of the landscape which stays in. Um, we go to snow, watch snow leopards in Leh and beyond Leh. Uh, to an area which is called Hemis National Park hmm. and it's one of the best places in India to watch the snow leopard. Over there, the beauty of the thing is uh, you land in Leh which is at 9,000 feet anyway and then from there you drive up towards Hemis National Park at 12,000 feet and you stay over there in tents. Now, you are staying in tents in a sleeping bag at minus 5 to minus 10 degrees Celsius. You are looking for a cat which is only active late evenings and early mornings. That means when the wind is really blowing hard, there is no sun and there could be even a snowstorm coming in. You are out in your whatever warm clothes you have with your binoculars looking on a mountain range which is about 2 kilometers away for a small grey speck moving. 
That's what you're looking for. Now, a lot of times we are very lucky to see it in the first two, three days. A lot of times we don't see it for six days, seven days. But when you see it, the sense of achievement or the sense of just sighting that snow leopard and understanding how elusive that cat is and in what conditions it stays in is probably a high which you can get only if you see it. Hmm. Just being in that environment itself. So snow leopards are very, very unique creatures and seeing them is really amazing. You see the red pandas which are seen uh, pretty frequently now in Sikkim uh, on the border of uh, uh, Sikkim and uh, Nepal. Uh, red panda is it's a herbivore and it has been voted as the cutest animal in the world by the way. I didn't know that. So seeing a red panda is relatively easy uh, as compared to the snow leopard because you are going at the same altitude 10 to 12,000 feet uh, but the conditions are not as bad because Red pandas need trees and tender leaves to feed on. Right. Whereas in the snow leopard area, you're on totally bare rock faces. It's totally scree or mountain slopes. Nothing else is there. There's no tree or anything there. So red pandas are also uh, much better in terms of uh, hostility of the environment. Right. But when you see the red panda, it really looks like something which you want to just grab and cuddle. <laughs> it's really a cute, cute animal. And uh, it's again hard to find first. Because you have to trek. There's no way where you can go by a jeep and you can say, oh, that's a red panda. It's not right. as simple as that, uh, as simple as seeing a tiger in, for most people. But uh, red pandas are very, very nice to see. But it's the sense of achievement which you have when you have done such a strenuous uh, walk or a trek or a hike to go and then see that animal and then just understand how difficult it is to see that in its natural environment. Hmm. So that's the beauty of it. And uh, that's why... We are now focusing a lot on the uh, understanding the habitat uh, implications of the red panda and the snow leopards. Uh, getting the local people to organize homestays. See, because there are no hotels over there. I mean, even, even though we are staying in a tent, someone has to cook. So the local Ladakhi tribe, uh, the, the tribes which are there, we have told them, you know what, we are coming here to see snow leopards. We would like you to cook for us. And we would like to use your bathrooms or your restrooms hmm. for which we will pay you a certain amount of money. So the Ladakhis over there realized, oh, they're coming to see the red panda, uh, to see the snow leopards. And this is a way of having good income. So earlier on, they used to actually drive the, uh, the snow leopards away because it used to come and kill the sheep and goat which they had. Now they are okay with it. In fact, they tell us, you know what, two days back, the neighboring village, one of the villagers has seen a snow leopard. Why don't you go there and try that? So, again, involving local people. Coming into this whole aspect, um, the environmental damage that kind of happens when we yeah. start doing exercises like this, um, what is the impact that we are going to do? Definitely there is impact. Uh, waste management plans which are there, fuel wood burning which is happening, um, you know, just the, low, the fumes which are being you know, sent around as jeeps and vehicles are moving around. And lay is facing quite a bit of it. It is, it is, it is. A shortage of natural resources. Right. Lay, two years back, has started facing shortage of water. Right. This year, I don't know what's going to happen because the tourist season has just begun. So definitely lay has, is going to be hmm. in, in quite a lot of trouble. These are impacts which, again, are needed to be assessed by the local management which is over there. Hemis National Park. There are only a certain number of people allowed to go into the national park. Whatever garbage they create, they are supposed to get it back to Leh and from Leh take it back 
to they call it mainland means delhi because the flight to uh, from leh is to delhi you are supposed to collect and get it back to delhi then you can dispose it of correctly now in leh there are certain organizations which are there which ask you for your waste garbage which is there typically plastic bottles and right. you know, things like that and then they recycle it so there are now organizations who are working in leh itself there's an organization called snow leopard conservancy india trust slc it right and they are now encouraging villagers to become sensitive to foreign garbage which is there foreign garbage is which you and i take over there exactly. use it and then don't know what to do with it so chuck it but they tell us no please take it back so when you are going into hemis national park you are paying them a fee for garbage collection okay and they are not collecting garbage you are collecting your own garbage for which you are paying them money so in case something goes wrong they have the funds to actually get rid of whatever little bit of garbage which we might have missed out so right. again hemis national park did it right in the beginning itself right when this whole snow leopard and you know these kind of things started general tourists who are going to lay for let's say the monasteries or culture all that you it's i think it's too late for them to implement these kind of things though lay has now become a plastic free zone hmm. they've all become plastic free zone you know you you not get a polythene bag or anything like that they'll charge you if you want a bag and they charge you go hefty amount they charge you 50 rupees for a plastic bag so you really think twice do i want it or do i not so these things are happening now it's only going to be a financial issue that oh i if you are you financially capable of taking that bag or do you not want to take that bag and right. help the environment so there these things are happening over there coming to national parks into mainland india let's take ranthambore as an example ranthambore has got more than 100 plus hotels yeah do they do well not necessarily all of them yeah because there's a, uh, there are only a certain number of jeeps which can go in and number of tourists which can go in so there are a lot of hotels which don't have any tourists with them but still they are running they are dependent on water they are dependent on sewage the sewage management in savai madhopur was not meant to have 10000 people right it was meant only for 2000 people right so now their management plans are being implemented because they are seeing a huge inflow of tourism over there which they just didn't know would happen so now the forest department if you want to go tomorrow to ranthambore and say oh i want to put up a lodge over here i want to build a hotel over here they tell you that this is a green zone you cannot build it over here go 30 kilometers outside get approval of the local panchayat over there show them what your uh, waste management plans are get it approved and then you can build it so now guidelines are laid so which is positive very very, very positive very positive yeah even current hotels which are there they have got guidelines which they have to adhere to and there are government guys who come and check okay i mean food and all that we know because it happens everywhere but uh, madhya pradesh forest department waste management plan is very very successful they ask you they put they have put up small bins over there where they ask you to put garbage over there we will collect it and take it away and get it disposed of correctly so they've got these kind of things happening uh, when your when the sewage in your hotel is going to get flushed out where is it going to get flushed out don't flush it out we will come we will get our tankers we'll get them get it pulled out we will charge you a hefty amount if you don't have a plant which is a ro water plant and you're using water bottles we will charge you hotel tax for that okay like if you go to a five star hotel over there and you say you want a bottle of water a bottle of water costs you 15 or 20 rupees they'll charge you 200 rupees for the bottle of water do i have an option of drinking yes we have ro water kept which is in a glass bottle drink that it's filtered we as a hotel have got a plant over here they're okay. encouraging in that way 
Okay. So things are financial implications is the probably only way which you can curb people from littering and not taking things back again. True. So yeah. that's one thing which I think it's they're doing really really well, and all national parks are doing it everywhere. Okay. Every every hotel is giving you filtered water to drink, and they're encouraging you. Please take our water bottles because we don't know what to do with these plastic bottles. If you insist we want plastic bottles, they'll give you, but they'll charge you for it then. And they'll charge you a good price. It's not going to be 15, 20 rupees, which is RHL, 10 bottle uthale. It's not going to be like that. They're going to tell you, you know what, you to pay 200 rupees for the bottle of water you want. So, yeah, it is there. They're doing it nicely. Finishing off, what is the message that you would like to give to our young generation, especially? Um, I think uh, the one message which I definitely want to give people is uh, give youngsters of my age and lower. Mm is question what are, what is happening around you especially to environment and uh, things pertaining to natural resources right uh, if tomorrow you open the tap and there's no water coming in don't wait for that day to question why is there no water in the taps you know start questioning from now maybe uh, your kids will be able to not answer that question that oh there's no water in the tap so question what is happening around you uh, with little bit of knowledge from your side also don't just randomly question uh, on social media hmm. that that happens a lot uh, be a learned questioner rather than just being a conversationist questioner and uh, get into wildlife it's i mean it's an amazing career to have i'm living proof of it yeah <laughs> thank you induji it was amazing thank you very thank much thank you Pooja. so much thank you for giving me an opportunity to speak over here yeah. And uh, yeah, looking forward to getting yes. more people. Of course, I mean, the, the motive of the show has been that we want to bring what all different aspects people have been doing to the yeah. people out there. So, yeah, it was yep, thank great. you very much. Thanks.